How are you going to feel when you achieve this goal? What's it going to mean to you to know that you've taken control of your life and you have achieved this goal instead of letting days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, and years turn into a lifetime? Write down how you're going to feel. You're going to feel proud. You're going to feel fulfilled. You're going to feel excited. You're going to feel energized. You're going to feel like you have a second chance. You're going to feel like you've set a great example for your kids. I mean, how are you going to feel? So now you've become proactive, right? It's Dr. Phil, and we've been talking about how you can improve the way you live your life. I don't care how good your life is. I don't care how well you think it's going. Everybody, including me, can improve on how your life is working. Now, I say that because having done Living by Design 1 through 7, I have reminded myself of all the things that I've studied, all the things that I have researched and distilled into the 16 points in the playbook for winning in this life, and it has really refreshed me on the things that I feel very strongly about. I'll bet you I have learned as much from the first seven parts of Living by Design as you have. I've long believed that if you really want to learn something, teach it. Because in order to really know it, you have to crystallize it in your mind well enough to explain it to somebody else. So I bet I've gotten as much out of this as any one of you. This has been a really good refreshment for me. And I want to jump right in to number 10, because I'm anxious to get you the information that I want you to have. Number 10 is you must stretch and behave your way to success, even if it feels phony, even if it feels like you're faking it until you make it. I mean, come on, when you go to the next level, whether it's a new job or a new level in your tennis league or reaching up to somebody that you think is out of your social strata, you're going to feel like you're over your head, right? I always only half-jokingly say I married over my head. But if what you're doing is comfortable, if what you're doing is something you're good at, then that just means you're in a comfort zone. What if I said, okay, let's go back and do the fifth grade over again? You would say, well, why are we going to do that? Come on, Dr. Phil. I learned everything in the fifth grade. I must have because they sent me on to the sixth grade. So why would I do the fifth grade over again? I already know that. I would be very comfortable there, but why would I want to do it again? Well, let me ask you this. Why are you doing this year what you did last year? You already know how to do everything you did last year. So why are you doing the same damn thing again this year? You know why you're doing it? Because it's comfortable. We get into comfort zones, and so it's just easy. And as I've said before, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, and you look back and go, wow, I spent 10 or 12 years doing the same thing over and over and over again. Number 10 in your playbook is you've got to stretch yourself. Don't do what you already know how to do. Stretch yourself to do something that maybe you don't know how to do. Now, you may feel like, hey, why would I do it? I don't know how to do it. 
you didn't know how to do what you did in the fifth grade until you got into the fifth grade and did it. Look, here's the deal. Everybody's winging it. Some of us are just better at not showing it than others. But everybody is winging it. That doesn't mean that you're being a fraud. It just means that you need to stretch yourself to learn something new. And maybe you're doing it day by day. Maybe you're one day ahead of everybody else. Maybe you get appointed to a position as team leader on your job or supervisor on your job. And you go, oh my God, I don't know any more than anybody else does. And all of a sudden I'm put in charge. Well, you know what you need to do? You need to spend that night figuring out one more thing than everybody else knows so you can go in there tomorrow and know something they don't know. And then that night, maybe you learn three more things. So you go in the second day and you know four things they don't know, then five things, then six things. And then pretty soon you start dealing with issues they don't have to deal with. And now you do have unique knowledge they don't have. Now, look, I'm talking about this in terms of parenting, working on a job, relationships where you have to fake it till you make it. I'm not talking about doing that if you're a brain surgeon. If you're a brain surgeon, I'm not saying just show up down there at the brain surgery ward and say, yeah, I got this, and go in there and whack somebody's head open and start digging around. Of course not. Come on, have some common sense. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying show up down at American Airlines and say, no, I'm good. Put me in this A380 Airbus. Yeah, I'm good. And take off and kill yourself and everybody on board. I'm talking about normal life. I'm talking about the things where you can be adept, where you can be agile, where you can make some moves and stretch yourself, use your skills and abilities, use your charm, use your intellect, use your ability to learn on the fly. Give yourself a chance to move to the next level. Listen, I know this because I've done it. When you move to the next level, the first thing you need to do is assess what your resources are. And I'll tell you, there's something in every situation, particularly if it's work-related, there's what I call the old gray horse. There's somebody in every situation that's been there a long time, and they are the unofficial leader. Maybe they haven't aspired to the job. Maybe they don't have the credential that's required. Maybe you have to have a degree and they don't. Maybe there's some something that's needed that they don't have but they know everything that you need to know to make it work. It's the old gray horse or the old gray dog, whatever you want to find it. The one that's been there 20 years, they know where the lights are turned on. They know how to fix something when it's broke. They know how the system works. It's like in the military. You get some freshly minted second lieutenant out of college that hasn't got sense enough to come in out of the rain, let me tell you, he or she leans real heavy on that chief master sergeant that's been there for 20 years that knows how not to get shot in the head. And if they're smart, they're going to go find him or her, and they're going to watch them real close to figure out what needs to be done to stay alive, what needs to be done to get those troops to do what they need them to do. They're going to find that old gray horse, that old gray dog that has learned from experience what to do and lean on them real heavy. 
And I have always done that. I have the unique skill of getting these gigs where somebody does all the work and I get all the credit. Dr. Phil is a perfect example of that. There are 350 people on the payroll at Dr. Phil, but one guy walks out on that stage and gets all the credit. But yet there are 350 people behind that camera who help design the show, prepare each day's show, research everything about the guest, figure out all the graphics that show and tell the stories well, shoot all the videos, edit all the videos, get everything organized, run the cameras, run the audio, edit everything together at the end, get it up on the satellite. I don't even know where the satellite is. I don't even know what room you go to, what button you push. I just have to stand on the top of the roof with a megaphone, I guess, and yell. There are so many people that do those things. I surround myself with people that are really smart, really good at what they do. So if you're going to stretch yourself, surround yourself with people that are really vertically developed in one area. Maybe there are five different elements to this job that you're getting pushed into or that you've aspired to. And there are five people that are really good in that one area. They might not know anything about the other four, but that's okay because you got four other people that know those areas. And you are like the orchestra leader. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. You are the one that comes in, and you're not going to tell everybody, but you don't know how to do all this stuff, but you're going to surround yourself with the people who do, and you're going to learn from them every day, and you're going to be a leader. You don't have to do everything. You just have to make sure everything gets done. You remember me saying you have to learn how to accept compliments. Learn how to accept compliments and praise. I just get so tired of people that have this self-degrading, not self-effacing, but self-degrading attitude where they hold themselves back and say, oh, you know, thank you for offering the position, but I, I really don't know enough about it to run that. Are you kidding me? You know what's going to happen if you turn it down? They're going to go get somebody else who doesn't know enough about it to run it. And they're going to give it to that person because they just didn't admit that they don't know enough about it to run it. So somebody that probably doesn't know as much about it as you do is going to get the job you turned down because you didn't have enough guts to stretch. You need to be willing to stretch and get yourself into the position that takes you to the next level in life. Socially, career-wise, sports-wise, whatever it is, Look, we were all somebody else yesterday. Think about it. Unless you're really stagnated, and I mean really stagnated, we were all somebody else yesterday, right? Something happened in your life. A day went by. Maybe you saw something on television that embedded in your memory, changed your attitude. 
Maybe you watched a movie that inspired you to go spend some time with your children or something. I don't know. We're all somebody yesterday, and we'll be somebody else tomorrow. What I want you to do is be who you are on purpose, which means stretch into the next best you. Don't just be that leaf in the stream that we've talked about. Take a direction. Do something, right? And when we're talking about a work situation, there's a difference between headship and leadership, and I'll tell you what it is. Headship is when somebody has a position because they are assigned it. There's 20 people there, and the boss comes in and says, number seven, you're the supervisor. But number seven may not know anything that the other people don't, but they've just been assigned the position. That's headship. Leadership, on the other hand, is achieved. Leadership is that position that someone has gained because they've gotten the respect of the people they work with. People have watched what they do and said, this person knows how to get the job done. This person knows how to get things going. So when it gets crunch time, do you think they turn to the assigned supervisor? Or do you think they turn to the person that they have experienced as always getting things done? It can be different in different situations. In my career, I am the leader. I star in my own life. I star in my own show. And I believe that I have earned the respect of the people that I work with. They look to me as the leader. I play tennis a lot, and I play a lot of doubles. When I step on the court, if the person I'm playing with is better than I am, which is almost always true, I look at them and say, where do you want me? You want me here? You want me there? Because in that situation, they're the leader, not me. They've demonstrated that they have a higher degree of competency, a higher degree of excellence, a higher degree of what they do in that situation than I have. So I'm the leader among leaders, in my opinion, but it's situation-specific. On the tennis court, I'm not the leader. On the tennis court, someone else that has earned that right is the leader. And so I step, you want me forehand or backhand? You want me to serve? You're going to serve. You're the leader. You're the captain here. What are we going to do? You have to step up and stretch yourself into leadership. There's that old saying, good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from really bad judgment. You've all heard that, right? So you're going to make mistakes. If you live a risk-free life, then you're going to keep doing the fifth grade over and over again. That's not what you want to do. If you're going to get ahead in this life, you have to be willing to take risk. Not recklessness, reasonable risk. You got to play big. You got to play bold. You've got to stretch. You've got to be willing to get in over your head. Does that create anxiety? I'm sure it does. But if you want to get ahead, you're going to have to be willing to put it out there. There's something I've always done, and I'm pretty conservative financially. I don't do wild investments. I invest a lot of money in myself and my own projects. I'll have a lot of money out on things that I am involved in and control, but not in some harebrained scheme up in Wyoming. Maybe that will hit it big, maybe it won't. But I've always bought 
a house bigger than I needed or bigger than I could afford at the time I bought it. Now, why is that? You know, you talk about people that are getting what is sometimes called house poor. They get so much house that they're poor, they're house poor. I've always bought a bigger office building than I needed at the time, more land than I needed at the time. Because if I buy what I need at that time, at that moment, and I am on the move, by definition, it's obsolete the day I buy it. If I buy an office building that meets my needs to a T the day I buy it, doesn't it become obsolete immediately unless I predict that I'm going to plateau and stay in that same position for the next 10 years? I have never believed that. I have always thought this is a stretch today, but I'm going to be damn glad I've got it a year from now. I'm betting on me, and I've never been wrong. I've bought office buildings that were twice as big as I needed the day I bought them, and a year or two later, I was looking to expand. I've always figured, planned that I was going to stretch to the next level, that I was going to aspire to a bigger degree, to a higher degree, to more success than I was experiencing at the time, because I know two things. Number one, I believe in myself. And number two, I'm willing to stretch. When I went on to the Paramount lot, I could have taken X number of square feet in the May West building. Instead, I took the entire first floor because I didn't plan to do one television show. Five years ago, we produced a thousand episodes of television across five different television shows. I had room to accommodate all of that and accommodate all of that staff. I knew that was my goal. I knew that was my plan. It was stated. I wrote it down. I put it on a timeline, and I took the steps necessary to get there. And I have plans going forward. I'm going to need more space. But that's a new challenge. We're all someone else yesterday, and we will be somebody else tomorrow. How about you? Are you willing to stretch? Now, I'm not saying be reckless. I mean, come on. You don't want to go out there and put your family in jeopardy by some pie in the sky. I'm going to buy a yacht. I'm going to get an airplane. I'm going to get some mansion on a hill that if you get so much as a head cold or miss one day, you go bankrupt. That's not what I call taking a reasonable risk. That's what I call living in fantasy land. But if you've set goals like we've talked about, you've written them down, you've put a timeline on there and determined that you can take the steps to meet that reasonable goal, then don't plan to be a year from now where you are now. Because if you do, every plan you make will be obsolete. Now think about that and make the distinction. I'm not saying to be reckless. And there are a lot of different forms of this. You've always heard people say, dress for success. Dress like you plan to succeed. Dress, conduct yourself like you are successful. You feel better. You look better. You're reacted to better if you present yourself that way. Don't you feel better when you take a shower and clean yourself up and put on the best clothes that you have and go out there presenting yourself the best way you possibly can? Of course you do. You cannot let fear of failure hold you back. Let me read your mind for a minute. 
Dr. Phil, what if I'm wrong? What if I take the risk? I stretch. Do what you're saying. I go for that job. What if anxiety takes over? What if I choke? What if I panic? It's gone well for you most of your life. Well, that's great for you. What if it doesn't go that well for me? Well, we talked about the what-if game. Monsters live in the dark. Play that out to the end. If you're going to play the what-if game, play it out to the end. Winners play it out to the end because monsters live in the dark, and the real consequences are never as dire as you imagine. What if you don't make it on your first time at bat? What if you don't get the results that you're looking for every single time you reach for the brass ring. Well, you pick yourself up and go again. The best golfer in the world loses 97% of the time. The best golfer in the world loses 97% of the time. Does he plan to win every single time he tees it up? Of course he does. You don't go out there and say, All right, man, I'm going to come in 20th today. Nobody does that. They all plan to win every single time. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. But you're always in the game and you're always striving. So what if you reach? What if you stretch and you don't get the result that you want? Then you take what you learned and you stretch again. You take what you learned and you stretch again. But you don't ever, ever stop reaching and stop stretching. Because if you're not stretching, you're shrinking. And I promise you, when you get to the end of your life, it will not be the nose. It will not be the time in your life that you've said, no, I think I'll pass. It will not be those times that you look back on fondly, reminisce about, and tell your grandchildren about. You won't sit there in your 70s, with your grandkids all around you starting their careers and say, let me tell you about the time I didn't try to do better in my career. You think those will be the stories that you look back on fondly? Of course they won't. The highlights will be those times that you stretched yourself, that you took reasonable risk. And you hope because they're reasonable and because you know what you're good at, because you practice your strengths, because you stay in your lane, that you're going to have your share of victories. I've taken some chances in my life that would make grown men throw up. But that's me. I'm okay with that because if they don't work out, I know I'm okay with that. I was okay with it before I started. If this went totally bust, I'm okay with that. I've been poor. I know how to do poor. Wasn't that hard. Know how to do it. Never played the game of life with sweaty palms. You only play the game of life with sweaty palms if you don't play the what-if game out to the end. Because you play it out to the end, what if I fail this time? Well, play that out to the end. And you know what you'll do? You'll find out, well, I'll still be alive. I'll still have people in my life that love me. I'll still have people in my life that I love. I'll still have my brain, I'll still have my body, I'll still have a skill set, and I'll get back in the game. 
You know, there's this girl that I'm really taken with. Maybe it's it's your work. There's somebody that you really have become smitten with. And so you want to ask her to go on a date with you, get your courage up, and you go ask her. And she kind of laughs and says, no, I don't think so. And you're crushed. You go, oh, my God, I mean, I'm crushed. What am I going to do? Well, so what if she does that? What if she does it in front of her friends? And you're crushed. What if? Well, you'll go back and tell your friends. And if they're honest, they'll tell you that's happened to them too. You'll lick your wounds and go home and binge watch something on TV and get back in the game and go after something else the next time. Come on. They can't kill you. They kill you. They can't eat you. I mean, it's not that bad. Play the what if game out to the end. You've got to be willing to stretch. You're not ever going to get ahead in this life if you're not willing to stretch. Number 11, you must always keep your options open. You must always keep your options open. That's what makes a risk reasonable instead of reckless, by the way. I'm not telling you to go all in, mortgage your house, sell your cars, cash in your kid's college fund, and invest in a wildcat oil deal somewhere up in the middle of nowhere. That's reckless. That's not what I'm telling you to do. That's like shooting dice. That's gambling. That's not taking a reasonable risk. You must always keep your options open. And let me tell you how that works, because this is an important element of your playbook. Winners are smart enough not to deal in ultimatums, take rigid positions, and not leave themselves a way out. Winners are smart enough not to deal in ultimatums, take rigid positions, and not leave whoever they're dealing with with a way out. Winners are smart enough to say, whatever I'm doing, whether it's with parenting my children, partnering with the person that is my significant other, negotiating with my boss, whatever, I have to leave them a face-saving way out if I expect to win. If you're negotiating with your kids, maybe it's a teenager, and the only possible way for you to win is for them to completely fold up their tent and say, they're wrong, they're idiots, you're the wizard that knows everything in the world, so they're going to do exactly what you said, and they're sorry they ever even thought of it. You got a long road ahead of you, because that just ain't going to happen. If you want to win and get your teenager to comply with something that you want them to do, you've got to give them a face-saving way out. You've got to give them a way where it's easy for them to not do what they wanted to do and to do what you want them to do. That means you've got to figure a way to get this handled without them saying, yes, you're right and I'm wrong. I mean, you're crushing their ego when you do that. You can't deal with ultimatums. If you say to your teenager, all right, you're grounded for life and you're never getting your driver's license back. Well, you know the problem with that? What are you going to do next? You've just grounded them for life. What are you going to do now? Ground them in the afterlife? 
you have nowhere to go. And you've used the word never. You're never getting your driver's license back. So what, at 42, they're going to be sitting at home saying, oh, my dad's got my driver's license. I'm never getting it back. Come on. You've got to stop and think you don't deal in ultimatums. You don't take rigid positions. You have to leave yourself and others a face-saving way out. If you're dealing with people in your life, maybe it's at work, maybe it's in your social life, maybe it's in the PTA at school, maybe it's your in-laws, maybe it's your brothers or sisters, even if you in your mind are done, I mean, you're done. It's like, okay, that tears it. I'm done. Do they need to know that? Stop and think about it. If you want to win, if you want to be successful, do they need to know that? Or is that just immature venting on your part? I can promise you I have laughed with people that have screwed me over and have no idea I know because they don't need to know and I don't need for them to know. I don't telegraph everything I know. I let people know things when they need to know it and when I need for them to know it. More often than not, they don't need to know it, and I don't need for them to know it. So even if I'm done with somebody, I don't have to telegraph that to them. Because when I take a rigid, ultimatum, final position, and I give it away to the person that is the focus of that, I give up my leverage. Winners never give up their leverage. They never give up their leverage. Never, ever. I can tell you there are hundreds of people in my life that would be shocked to know how I feel about them. They'd be shocked. And you think, well, so Dr. Field, are you being phony with people? I'm not being phony with people. Remember what I said? Always be in investigative mode and keep your plans, what? Close to the vest. Why do I need people to know what I'm thinking or feeling? How does that benefit me? If there's somebody that talks behind my back, the important thing is that I know it. It is not important or even helpful to me if they know I know. In fact, it's better. It is more helpful for me if they don't know I know. That's valuable to me. I've said this is a game, and I've said it's chess, not checkers. And you may think, well, you're talking about playing games. No, I'm talking about playing the game, the game of life. I'm not telling you how it should be. I'm telling you how it is. Now, you may be saying, well, that's just not right. I mean, people should just, A, they shouldn't be talking behind your back, and B, if they do, you should work that out with them. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're talking about how the world should work. And I'm talking about how it does work. And the way it does work is you have an advantage when you have information that other people don't have. So you don't need to go tell everybody everything you know, and you don't need to go take rigid positions with somebody and say, 
you talk behind my back, you are disloyal, you are two-faced, you are not trustworthy, I am done with you. How does that help you? You may know that in your own mind. You may know that in your own heart. So you're good, right? You're not going to expose yourself, be vulnerable to that person. So you're safe. You know it. Why do you need to take that rigid position with them? How does that help you? Investigative mode lets you know what you need to know. Keeping your plans, your results close to your vest gives you power, gives you leverage. And the time may come when it's a critical moment that you may use that information. But you just don't need to go precipitate a confrontation just for the purpose of precipitating a confrontation. You must always keep your options open. You go burn your bridge with that person. You go tell them what you know. Well, you've foreclosed some options, haven't you? You don't need to know that. So I'm telling you two things here. Number one, when I say keep your options open, I'm telling you don't deal in ultimatums and take rigid positions. That means leave the person you're dealing with a face-saving way out. Make it easy for them to comply with what you want them to do. Leave their ego intact. You can do that even if you are disciplining someone. Maybe you've got an employee that is not showing up on time. Maybe they're having real problems with tardiness. And you say, well, I just got to come down on them about this. We just can't have this. So you can call them in and just say, look, that doesn't go around here. We just can't have this. So you better straighten up or I'm going to fire you. Okay. That's A, a confrontation, which is not a good way to deal with people. It's an ultimatum, which is not a good way to deal with people. And it's a rigid position, which is not a good way to do Other than that, good job. Or you can do it in a face-saving way. You can call that person in there and say, okay, now, Carol, I need to talk to you about something that's really important, and I'm doing this because you're just really valuable to us here. I mean, you're an important part of the team here. We depend on you in a lot of ways, and because you're important, we really need you to be here when we start our day because everybody has different things that they do, and the things that you do are very important to us. You know, if you were not, if you were just kind of a fill-the-square sort of person, it wouldn't be that critical, but that's not the case. You're a smart person, so we've given you important things to do. You're an important part of this team, and we, we need you to be here so we can make sure everything's taken care of. Can you help me with that? Because I really need you to do that. I, I think between us, we can work this out. So how can you help me? with that. Okay, now what you've just done is said, look, I know you're not showing up on time, but I'm going to leave your ego intact here by telling you you're really important, and I'm going to get you to buy in by saying, how can you help me with this? And whatever she may say, well, you know, my kid or my this or my that, well, then let me help you. Let's make a plan here, because I don't want us to get in a position where we have to take this to the next level, because I need you here. Now, they walk out feeling like, well, I just got 10 minutes of being told how important I am, and I got told I need to be here. But we made a plan together, and we're going to talk about this again. It's a whole lot better than taking rigid ultimatum positions 
where she has no face-saving way out of this. She's actually gotten stroked a little bit and asked to be a problem solver with her being a problem. So you're a lot better off if you can leave your options open and pull people in. You may be at the end of your rope, but you can do that and convey that in a way that doesn't crush the person's ego. And if they blow it off, then you're able to say in the next meetings, well, you know, we gave it a try, didn't we? You and I both worked at it and we gave it a try and it just didn't work out. But we can move on knowing that we worked on it together and we gave it a good effort and maybe you can get these things worked out before you go on to your next position because I know you can do a really good job and I, I hope you do in your next place. Again, you've not dealt in ultimatums and been rigid, but you've asserted your position at the same time. So I'm just saying, keep your options open. You don't have to tell everybody everything you know. There's a difference between being genuine and being brutally honest. Both of them convey the truth. Let's say you're sitting in a nightclub and a guy walks up to you and says, hey, would you like to dance? It may be the last person in the Northern Hemisphere you would like to dance with. Maybe he smells like a goat and looks worse. And you're thinking, oh my God, I'd rather take a beating. Now, you're sitting there with three friends, and the truth is, I'm not going to dance with you. So you can say, you're very kind to ask, but I'm going to say, no, I'm, I'm here with my friends and we really want to spend some time together right now, but thank you so much for asking. Or you can be brutally honest and say, you're ugly and you smell bad, and I wouldn't dance with you if you were the last biped in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay, now both of them convey the same thing. I'm not getting out of this chair and dancing with you. One of them is genuine. You're not getting out of the chair and dancing with them. The other one is brutally honest. Which would you rather be? You can leave his ego intact and give him a face-saving way to retreat, or you can crush him where he stands. I'm saying give the person you're interacting with a face-saving way out. Always do that. You see me do it all the time on Dr. Phil with drug addicts, you know, whether it's alcoholics or heroin addicts or teenagers that are being defiant with their parents or whatever, I really make an effort to give them a face-saving way out instead of saying, hey, it's you against me, kid. So let's just see who's got the sway here. You want to try me, kid? Let's see who can handle it. No. I say, look, isn't it just possible that you need a break. This isn't just all about you. This is about the family, but isn't it just possible that you need a break? They are frustrated, and I get that, but don't you also need a break? Wouldn't it be nice to get off where you don't have to hear this day in and day out? I mean, come on, be honest. Don't you need a break? And I can't tell you. You go back and look how many times they say, eh, you know, I never thought of it that way. You put it that way, I, yeah. I'm tired of listening to it. I do need a break. That would be nice. Either way, they're going. 
it's sure nice if they say, yeah, I need a break. So they got a face-saving way out. They have some ownership in it instead of it being done to them and having to give up their macho way. Give the person a way to retreat with dignity. Well, let's go on to number 12. You must always master the system and figure a way to make it work for you. Now, this is really important. There are always, always rules and parameters to how any system works. I don't care if it's a relationship with somebody you're dating. There are rules and guidelines to it. I mean, how much time does she need in advance before she goes out on a date? How early does he need an answer about whether you're going or not? Do you drink? Do you not drink on a date? Do you go out with other people? Do you go out alone? There are always rules to a relationship. In a work situation, there are rules and parameters. It doesn't matter what the situation, anytime there's a sociogram, and that just simply means there are a group of people, small or large, that come together and work as a unit, there are always rules of engagement and parameters, right? Like at work, there's a time to show up and a time to go on break, a time to go to lunch, a time to leave, reporting relationships or whatever. In a family, there's a hierarchy, there's a matriarch and a patriarch, there's a pecking order, their kids have different personalities. Every situation has rules and parameters. Some are spoken, some are unspoken, and then below what's apparent, there are the hydraulics of how things really work. Those are often different than what the rules say. You know, the rules may say, you do things A, B, C, and D, but then the way it really works informally can be very different. And what I'm telling you is I have studied so many winners, so many champions, so many people that consistently come out on top, and they study and know the system they're in. Figure out the system you're in. Whatever it is, what really makes it work? What really are the guidelines associated with it? That's what you need to know. Now, I talked a little bit about this example once before, but it's one of the best I've ever thought of, and I'm going to give you two here, actually. One is, in my PhD program, you fill out what's called a degree plan. Now, a degree plan is a contract between the student and the graduate school that list what all the requirements are to get your degree. It might be 90 hours of coursework and maybe 12 hours of practicum, then 12 hours for dissertation, and six hours for master's thesis. So it all adds up to where it's like 120 hours. That's a contract. You get with your advisor and you make that out, and you sign it, and they sign it, and you file it with the dean's office, and now you've got a contract. If I do this, then you give me that. Now, when I got to graduate school, I was friends with some of my undergraduate professors, and they had told me how programs evolve across time. So the week I got there, I filled out my degree plan. And out of all the incoming students, I was the only one that filled out and filed a degree plan. Only one. 
at the end of a year, still, no one had filled out a degree plan. The end of two years, no one had filled out a degree plan. End of three years, no one else had filled out a degree plan. Four years, no one else had filled out a degree plan. Why? Because that's what you do when you're getting ready to graduate. You fill out a degree plan, be sure you got everything, and then you do it. Well, I got ready to go on internship, and I met with the clinical director, and they said, oh, no, 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 no. That's what was required back when you started. But since then, they've added four more semesters of this and two more semesters of that, and your internship has to be approved by this and that, so it's going to be another year wanting to give them a face-saving way out, I said, well, I can understand how you would uh, conclude that. However, I filled this degree plan out four years ago. I signed it, and the department head signed it, and the dean's office ratified it. This is a contract, and I've completed it all. I'm done, and I'm out of here. I got a 4.0. And I've completed every requirement. And she said, oh, well, no, 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 no. And I said, yes, 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 yes. I said, but I'll tell you what, let me leave this with you. And you can chat with the department head and the dean. And I'll get back with you because I'm sure there are some things y'all need to go through. I didn't want to put her on the spot and have her go, oh, okay, you're right. Want to leave her face-saving way out. Never met with her again. All I got was a memo said, you're done. Now, I understood how it worked. I understood the rules and the guidelines, but I also understood the unspoken rules and guidelines. These things evolve. That old saying, the longer you chew it, the bigger it gets. They just keep adding stuff. They keep moving the goal line. You know, you think I'm on the 20 and the goal line is 20 yards away. So you run 20 yards and you go, where's the goal line? Oh, well, they moved it 10 yards. Well, I thought I was only 20 yards out. No, no, it's now 10 yards further. And you go 10 more yards, they go, well, they moved it five yards. So, oh, no, and I got to go five more yards. And so you go five more, oh, they moved it two more yards. So now you thought you're 20 yards out, and it turns out you were 37 yards out. So by knowing the system, I saved myself a year. Know the system you're in. Winners you remember what I said, out-prepare the other side. And were they the other side? Damn right they were the other side. It was a very adversarial system where there was an attempt to wash out as many as they could. It was a very adversarial system, and I studied the system. I had some very supportive professors that had become my friends, and they sat me down and said, now, let me tell you something. You want to go down there and file that degree plan. I said, I don't need it for four years. You want to file it the day you get there. Because trust me, four years from now, it's going to be a lot different than it is today. And they were exactly right. I had supporters and friends that told me how the deal really works. And I was so glad I did. Know the system. It can save you time and money and make you a winner. I was out an average of three years earlier than all of my fellow students. Three years earlier. 
Now, I'll give you another example. I've been a pilot since I was a teenager, and I had a great flight instructor. One thing you learn is when you're a student pilot, the system is afraid of you <laughs> because they know you're greener than a parrot's ass. I mean, they know there's no telling what this person can do. They're a student pilot, which means they've got like almost no time. So you pull into an area that's really congested. I mean, you pull into Dallas Fort Worth or Houston Hobby or LaGuardia or somewhere. I mean, they're calling out traffic and instructions and everything so fast, your head's just swimming. Oh my God, it can just overwhelm you. You just pick up that mic and say, um, I'm a student pilot. Uh, can I get a little help here? <laughs> and all of a sudden, everything slows down. And somebody says, Absolutely. Turn heading 180 and just stay with me, and we will get you to the end of the runway and get you landed. Now, that's a panic button. The entire time I've been a pilot, I've been a student pilot because I was either getting my original license, my instrument license, my commercial license, something. I've always been a student at some level. So I could always legitimately key that mic and say, I'm a student pilot. And knowing the system and knowing how it worked, the whole world changed just by knowing that one thing. I'm a student pilot. Know the system. Know the pressure points and the hot buttons can make all the difference in the world. Look, I'm throwing an awful lot at you. That's it for today for Living by Design 8. We're going to pick up next week with Living by Design 9, and that's when we're going to finish the 16-part playbook. And then we're going to talk about how to put it in your life. I'm Dr. Phil. Thanks for listening.